0: hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of thinking aloud about film i'm jose
1: i'm richard
0: and we are continuing our exploration of bill douglas films this is our fourth it's his entire filmography isn't it richard
1: there are a few early shorts he made and there's some things that he kind of co-wrote but yeah as director this is his kind of you know Canon of work, it's just these four films.
0: I was certainly very interested in the work because I found it gobsmacking. I was looking at another trilogy and thinking, how can a man who makes films this great have such a slim earth? And we got into discussions of class and, you know, how that might have affected, like, his output. Of course, you know, one can't really know. It might be character... You know, it might be circumstance, there could be a whole bunch of other reasons. Still, it seems to me quite exceptional. Or something worth debating in relation to the current issues about class in Britain, that it's harder and harder, you know, for people of a working class background to get training in the arts and opportunities in the arts and and so on. It's a live issue, at least for me.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, but we are today going to talk about Comrades. So tell me a little bit about it, Richard.
1: This was his fourth film, and his it ended up being his final film. It's very different from the trilogy. It was made in 1986. He'd been working on the script since the late 70s, I think. I mean, it took a long, long time to get it made. We, we talked last time about the British film and TV landscape at the time. He was making films and the fact that film Four coming along was a way that some of these films got funded and this was indeed a, a film film for international production i believe it had a very troubled production history it's a, it's a three hour long epic sort of telling the story of the Tolpuddle martyrs which is a you know a, a story which ought to be incredibly well known i suspect it isn't as well known as, it, as as it should be at least in the uk i don't think it was a commercial success at the time but it has a very, very, very good reputation now.
0: I should mention that we saw a two-hour, fifty-minute version. The official release running time is three hours and twenty.
1: The version we saw is the, the BFI release of it. Is this two-hour, fifty-five-minute version? So, whether there was an original edit that was three hours and twenty and it then got cut down, I, I don't know.
0: There are several edits. So, the Variety review. Writes about 160 minutes. That is shorter than the one we saw. The French DVD reviews talk about a three hour, 20 minute length. But before we begin discussing the film, why don't you tell us the plot?
1: It's the story of the Tolpotl Martyrs. So it's set in the early 19th century. It's a group of agricultural workers who band together and form a, a friendly society, so effectively an early form of trade union, to try and campaign for. Well, not necessarily better wages, just campaign for their wages not to be cut because the the money they're being paid keeps being cut. They campaign against the rich landowners, and as a result, they end up being put on trial on a fairly spurious charge of, I think, the charge is swearing an illegal oath. Um, And these six men are then transported to Australia. So we, we, the first half of the film covers all of this happening in the UK. The second half of the film is concern with what happens to them when they're in Australia. It roughly tells a true story. I think it deviates from known fact in the Australian bits. It's all kind of framed somehow as the story being told by a Magic Lantern operator, so there's a lot of references to early forms of cinema. Yeah,
0: um, I it, mean that's in actually integral to the storytelling. I mean, yeah, in some yeah. ways the story is told through an account of the prehistory of uh, motion images,
1: which which is a really really big interest of of Bill Douglas and also his um, his friend who you know, the the middle class guy who he meets in the final film of the trilogy and they they, they collected uh, early cinema and pre cinema equipment and so the Bill Douglas Museum is largely Bill Douglas's collection of of, of that sort of equipment. Um, there's a really interesting essay by him about the about that aspect of the film specifically that he wrote for the the journal of the Magic Lantern Association at the time it came out. so oh, that, which is Yeah, it's, re- it's, re- it's really fascinating because he goes through what his intention was, aimed at an audience of people who don't care about <laughs> the Toll puddle Martyrs or cinema. They just care about Magic Lanterns. So it's a very different perspective and it's, re- it's really interesting.
0: Yeah, I noticed, uh, so there was shadow play, there was Magic Lanterns, there was stereoscope, I saw a camera obscura, there were dioramas, there was a heliotype, a photograph machine, I mean it was really quite amazing the amount of devices and visual kind of technologies, early like technologies that you see in the film, and that I think is completely bound with the telling of this story which I think is significant for many reasons. One of them is that it is also a prehistory of the union movement, Yeah, So it is about uniting workers for justice and paying dues to help support each other. And also I thought it was very interesting because it's pre-Marx.
1: Yeah, yeah. But it's,
0: you know, comrades and it's a very Marxist story. So I thought, you know, those were two uh, very interesting things in the film. To pick up on a point that you brought up, I'm not sure that narratively the splitting it up into the british sequence and the australian sequence works so i know what he's doing by bringing us to australia right and he's trying to make a conjunction between you know the toll puddle martyrs and the indigenous people in australia both sharing an experience of oppression that kind of alters in context because of course you know those same convicts are then kind of oppressing indigenous peoples right so there's a sense of, of solidarity of seeing that they, ha- they share an experience of exploitation but also there's a sense in which some of them then turn themselves into exploiters as well with a kind of a gay thing that made me uncomfortable yeah I'm not sure whether it should make me uncomfortable but it does yeah
1: it, yeah it felt very much that what we were being shown with a couple of the exploiters in Australia were, were, was that they were were exploiting the young boy who's being kept kind of as a pet by both of them. Exactly. Um, and it so, was a little bit uncomfortable.
0: Yeah, so this idea of like, you know, of joining together queerness and pedophilia is just like, ugh. And actually mm. kind of unexpected coming from him, really. Um, yeah, yeah. So this is where I wonder whether I should be feeling that way, whether maybe he intended something else.
1: Essentially what happens is when they they, they get transported to Australia, one of them meets this boy, I guess he's 13, 14, who's also been transported from the UK. um, And he then kind of weaves in and out of the narrative and you keep meeting him in different situations. Um, The the first bit we're referring to, he's working for James Fox, who's a governor of, of part of Australia. And he's basically being blacked up. So he's being kind of dressed up as if he's a a black slave, dressed very elaborately. And it's kind of like he's being kept as a pet. And then he escapes from that, but ends up being uh, associated with this character who's referred to as Fop. I don't know if that's supposed to be a name or a description. And that they end up dressed identically in very kind of flamboyant clothes. And it, that to me was very clear that that relationship was supposed to be sexual. a kind of sexual relationship. Yeah. Yeah. I mean,
0: actually, yeah. it's referred to uh, by uh, the character played by Keith. Keith Allen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so that made me uncomfortable. But that's not really what I'm getting at. I think narratively, there's a sense in which for me, beautiful as the sequence in Australia is, the film kind of lost me and it partly lost me because if the story is the story of the struggle of of the tall puddle martyrs i wanted to know the sequel i want to know what happens with that martyrs how you know how people rallied around them what they did to help them
1: i think possibly you're right that focusing on what was going on in the uk but also focusing more on what happened when they when they got back because they the, the film ends with them oh I mean, this is not a spoiler because this is what happened to the top of the martyrs <laughs> they got pardoned and came back to the uk um and the last thing you see of them is that yeah, know they're giving a speech to their supporters but then you just get these magic lantern slides at the end and it just says so and so died in canada died in canada so, well, what the fuck were they doing in canada but basically you yeah, know, most of them Part of the Keith Allen character, they all emigrated. The fam- as a family, they emigrated to Canada later on because presumably being back in the UK still wasn't a comfortable situation.
0: I do think that the slides tell you that because they're very pointed. So they say Lovelace died in Canada at the age of 90. Stanfield, is it? You know, died in Canada at the age of 92. And then there's, you know, the last slide is so and so died in Tullpuddle you know in the workhouse at the age of whatever yeah right? yeah you know yeah. so so there's a sense that england is inhospitable unfair unjust that the only way that people actually could survive was to leave that's yeah what, that yeah. was my takeaway from those slides yeah. that's said, i really love this film
1: i simultaneously really loved it but also was thinking Watching this film, I now have a greater understanding of why he only made four films.
0: I think it's kind of a shame, and to me, it remains a question. You know, because why didn't a visual artist of this caliber, you know, which is to me kind of international, right? Like, I think he's one of he's one of the great visual stylists in cinema. Why didn't this man find a space and support? you know, within the British film, television, visual arts kind of milieu. It,
1: it strikes me that, I mean, this film is, is brilliant, but it's kind of very uncompromising. Um, so it's f- firstly just because of its length. You know, it's three, hour, it's three hours long. The form of it in that it, it tells this story, but kind of doesn't tell the story because you don't, it deliberately doesn't show you a lot of the key events, like the trial of the martyrs and this kind of thing. And the style of it, uh, so for instance, his, the original Producer was Ishmael Merchant, and apparently a big sticking point was that for the voyage to Australia, Bill Douglas insisted on using that panoramic painting, which is great. Yeah, yeah. But Merchant said, "Well, I want to use a real ship." While I love the way Bill Douglas did it, I can see Merchant's point in terms of making a commercially accessible film, which he, as a producer, he needs to think about. I think you have to credit Film Four for allowing him to finish the film and release it in the form that he wanted to release it, because a lot of producers probably wouldn't have allowed that. You know, it would Maybe. have been taken off him, we'd have ended up with a two hour cut, got rid of all the magic lantern stuff, added a voiceover, you know, thinking of Heaven's Gate or that kind of film.
0: It's interesting that you mentioned Ishmael Merchant because, you know, Ishmael Merchant always makes films about aristocrats, basically, you know, or the very, very gratin of the upper middle classes. And what is beautiful about this film is the way that he films landscape and people. Uh, Working class people are rendered kind of beautiful and full of feeling and emotion, you know, and dignity, right? And then you see the world in which they live in, right, which is on the one hand, these muddy fields, these spare huts and so on. And this glorious landscape. And I think it's one of the great landscape pictures of
1: England. I mean, you get these very long shots of the characters working in the fields. Yes. And you know, there's all these like there'll be a bunch of characters, often in the far distance, and you make everything out, and you just see see these patterns of people moving about. And it, I mean, it really reminded me of, of Shaheen's uh, the land in terms, in terms of the plot and what happens, but also in terms of the way it's filmed with all these kind of Epic landscapes and and people, you know, dotted around the hills or walking on the hilltops. It it, it all looks incredible.
0: Yeah. Um, And I really love that whole first part because you have moments of joy in these very harsh lives of people. So, you know, the young man dancing. yeah, Yeah, he's coming. He's an itinerant entertainer, I guess, going from village to village. That whole sequence is glorious, I think. That was
1: uh, Michael Clark, the the ballet dancer. Oh, was it? Yeah.
0: Gorgeous. I love all of that. It kind of lost me when he went to Australia because you lose that rootedness, that dignity, those social relations, and I'm not sure what you get. I actually had trouble figuring out, like, who are these people? How do they tie together? And the stories seem to be the same as the all these british convicts having a miserable time in australia one after another another, you know going on for an hour and a half
1: i I presume this reflects what happened that they they were all they they weren't all sent to the same place in australia split up so you, you get these five different sections but as you say it's like something terrible happens something terrible happens and the young boy comes and fucks everything up for them. Something else terrible happens and the boy turns up again and screws everything up. Then the boy gets adopted and dressed up by a rich man. Then he gets adopted and dressed up by another rich man. And then he steals the food and steals the food again. And, and it's, it's quite relentless. Yeah. And, but also because the first half of the film is all about how these people band together for the common good and then then they're, they're split up. I, I guess the thing is that the story of the Top of the Martyrs in terms of what happened in Tall Puddle, is hugely important in terms of the union movement and in terms of UK politics and and worker relations and so on. The story of what happened to them once they were transported to Australia, while clearly terrible things happened to them, they're the same things that happened to anyone else that was transported to Australia. So it's not really telling that unique story anymore.
0: Also, I think there was bad storytelling because there would have been a way of A, making things clearer, Right. And also making the relationships clear, making what happened to each of them into something collective through editing, for example.
1: Yeah, Uh, yeah. uh,
0: Which was not done. I also thought the focus on the young boy is kind of a distraction, right, from the main narrative. It should have been edited out because, you know, what is the young boy's relationship to the tall puddle martyrs?
1: There, yeah. there isn't one. He just happens to have come over on the same boat as one of them. I exactly. Mean, a... There, there is no, there is no connection. He's just this kind of. It, it's kind of felt to me he was like almost like another another character, like the Alex Norton characters, the Lanternist character, who keeps popping up. You don't need two people doing that. <laughs> um, which is why I, th- I think you know, in terms of I said this being kind of uncompromising and a little self indulgent, there are aspects of it that a a, a kind of sympathetic but strong-willed producer could have negotiated with, with Bill Douglas and said, well, you know, do we, yes, we, okay, we, we keep all this, but do we really need this? And you end up maybe with a film that's two and a half hours long, It makes, clarifies everything, clarifies what The Lanternist is doing with some, because that's not really set up very well at the beginning, I think, what The Lanternist is doing. Um, and and just makes everything a little clearer
0: yeah i'm not sure about that i really love the whole all of the things of the lanternist
1: oh I, I, I loved it but i felt it, it when you're when you're told at the end that he's been telling the story that isn't clear at the beginning and i think if, if if it was if that was done as a framing device where he starts off telling the story and then you just go into it just the, everything then becomes just a little bit clearer about where the film is going and why it's why it's in the style it is.
0: I think one of the interesting things about the film is that there's a real tension between the poetic and the narrative. All those things that I love about the film, you know, people's faces, the evocation of place, those shots of people walking through the landscape, you know, at work, but also at play and at night. You know, they're so gorgeous and so evocative you know, of of a people and of a way of life. I, I, I love it, right? Um, and that's his strength. And maybe that's why he works better in a shorter format. Because the narrative, the storytelling is tortured.
1: Mm-hmm. And also, uh, it's interesting to compare with uh, My Way Home, The I think we both felt that film kind of lost its way really once it, moved away from the community in scotland and out to egypt and this kind of does a similar thing but I did, as you say all those scenes i, I mean I, I love the way he's not afraid of silence and, and just you know long scenes of someone making a chair or someone digging a ditch you know and and it's all it all looks amazing but you, you really you're just watching people living and people working and that's kind of what he's doing well once you get into the rhythm of it and realize he's not actually showing you the the kind of action of the top martyrs—he's showing you the lifestyle they're trying to preserve—and you—and all all of this other stuff is is happening in scenes you don't see. Where that becomes really obvious is is in the the trial, which most films would make the dramatic peak of the film. But here you don't see the trial at all. You see the trial going on behind a glass door, and the wives waiting outside, and the witnesses coming in and out of the courtroom, and you have to kind of piece together what's what's going on. Uh, I mean, I, I, re- I really love that, but I can see why it, that kind of thing makes, for, you know, for a big budget period drama, it makes it a difficult proposition commercially.
0: Yes. I'd like to know more about what, what he hoped to achieve, what, what effects and what meaning and what type of experience he hoped to induce by making the Australia sequence so long. I mean, it it is literally half the film, right? And I don't think it supports half the film, even though it also has incredibly beautiful, evocative imagery. I love the shots of the sheep with Vanessa Redgrave, right? Um, The shots of the landscape of, you know, it was just gorgeous. But what do you get out of it? Maybe I'm missing something. Now I want to talk about the cast because the other thing is that he's incredibly good with actors.
1: The, yeah, and the cast is really interesting because all the in in general terms all of the the kind of aristocrats are played by you know big name big people who were big name actors in the 80s so you know Robert Robert Stevens, James Fox, Vanessa Redgrave, people like that. Whereas the top the martyrs and their families, it's kind of slightly hard to understand this now because most of those people are now really famous. But at the time, they were unknowns. So, you know, Imelda Staunton, for instance, this was her third credit on IMDb, she and the previous two bit. were just small roles on on TV. So the, this was her first leading role. Uh, you know, Keith Allen, Phil Davis, now you know much bigger names. Um, at that time, they weren't. I mean, yeah, not 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 all of that cast went on to big things, but yeah, you know, one. One of them went on to be in The Archers. <laughs> another kind of, another story of downtrodden agricultural folk <laughs> who've not yet risen up against their oppressors. But, um, you know, it, it was, that, that I found interesting about about the cast and clearly to be able to spot Imelda Staunton and give her her first big part, you know, that, that shows some talent in terms of spotting talent.
0: But also the work that Imelda Staunton does in it. So she's so kind of plain. And full of feeling and you know that that moment where she reads her husband's letter is so moving and so beautiful right and a lot of it obviously is in the dialogue and the letter being read but a lot of it is in her response to it yeah it's
1: a really
0: sparse you know and and complex and beautiful performance and that i think the director can take at least some credit from that
1: yeah, absolutely. Given she'd not acted on film before, you know. Uh, the the other, the sad thing about the casting is he wanted um, Stephen Archibald, who was the the lead in in the trilogy, to be in this. I presume as one of the martyrs, you know, he would have been. Uh, but this was ten years after My Way Home, so I guess he would have been late twenties at that point, maybe a bit older. Um, but he was in prison at the time for I think for possession of drugs. Right. Uh, so he 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 missed out on being in the film, and then. Died uh, not, not not that long afterwards. As did Bill Douglas. So that, that's quite sad. Um, the The other thing that I found very interesting was the use of Barbara Windsor. Which is,
0: oh, I loved her. Uh,
1: she's great. The, the thing is about Barbara Windsor. She'd been, you know, in the very early days of her career. You know, she was a, a serious actress-ish. You know, she was w- working with Joan Littlewood's Theatre Workshop. Uh, she did this film called Sparrows Can't Sing, which I think was based on a Joan John Littlewood play. Did stuff like that, and then just spent, you know. Twenty years, just being Barbara Windsor of the Carry On films and you know, doing her giggly laugh. And I, I looked at IMDb. This is the first film that, where she was in a serious acting role since Sparrows Can't Sing in the early in the early sixties. So.
0: I loved her and didn't recognise her. So mm. I, I mean, I did, but I didn't because. So I thought, who is that person giving a Barbara Windsor performance? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because. Yeah? You know, her face and the petticoat and the hat and I mean I, I knew that it was somebody giving that type of, of, of Barbara Windsor performance, but I didn't realize it was actually her, you know. And she was very good.
1: She's very good and she, she did say so she did this as her first kind of dramatic acting role for, for decades. And then not that long after this, she ended up doing what she did for the last kind of fifteen years of her career as, as this kind of matriarch in EastEnders, so it's possibly the biggest contribution of Bill Douglas's comrades to popular culture was (laughs) the kind of revival of Barbara Windsor's serious acting career.
0: I also loved seeing Vanessa Redgrave, you know, I think her first moments on horseback and she gets a kind of a star entrance where, you know, you just see her face and then like, you know, she smiles and kind of, you know, something on screen comes alive in a very mysterious way
1: it's fascinating that Bill Douglas managed to get all these you know, really big names for quite small roles, and some of them filmed in Australia. Getting James Fox, Vanessa Redgrave, Robert Stevens and so on when you're a director really making his first major feature is, is interesting, so I, which I guess tells you something about the reputation of the trilogy.
0: It tells you something about the reputation of the trilogy and it tells you something about the importance of the story being told.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, certainly from a political view, you can see why Vanessa Redgrave would have embraced it. Of Possibly course. less so, James Fox. But
0: yeah. <laughs> um, So my, my last question, or my last thought, really, something to throw at you, is that I feel that this film is kind of like an unwieldy mess. And I, I also think it's a very great film.
1: I would agree with that. I, I can see, the, yeah, as I say, I'm, I'm just really glad it exists in, in this form, which clearly is the form that... Bill Douglas wants it to exist in some sequences. I cut, the bit I know has been cut. There's a sequence where Alex Norton plays Barbara Windsor's husband, so th- some of it was cut. But it's kind of presumably uh, you, you can imagine the producers saying, "Okay, fine, Bill, but can we get it under three hours?" And that's not mm. unreasonable, I think. Mm. Um, but the fact that it exists in the form it exists in, keeping all that kind of the magic lantern framework, keeping all the you know the, like the the, the, the diorama paintings and all of, all of this kind of thing. And also, you, you think about other things that were happening at the time, you know, very very different film, but Blade Runner, where Ridley Scott was forced to add a voiceover you know, to make things clearer. A voiceover in this would have made things clearer, but would have really taken away the impact of it.
0: Sure. I mean, I think, you know, the reason why I, I see it as a very great film is, you know, because it has moments of real visual poetry and also moments moments that are very deeply moving or that I found very deeply moving the uh, Mother Staunton's reading of the letter to this Calvinist way Using the Bible's teachings as a way of adjudicating for liberty and fairness I mean, you know those the, the speech at the end, right? I found all of those moments very deeply moving
1: and, and in terms of the politics, it's so contemporary because what struck me was that scene. The, there's a scene where you, it contrasts the Anglican Church and the Methodist Church, and the Anglican Church, you get the, the vicar who's Freddie Jones delivering his sermon, and re, and really it's kind of you know know your place. You know you 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 should work hard. You should be happy with what you've got. And you compare that with what's being said, you know, this this week at that National Conservative Conference in the UK. That he, his sermon could have been delivered from the Stage at that conference, word for word, and then he and that obviously you know we're being told by these people, oh you know, British people should learn to work and should learn to pick turnips and and drive trucks, and then you get the scene where one of the martyrs eats a raw turnip, and you think, wow, that's kind of you know you you can't say that these that this is not addressing issues that are still relevant to us today. I found that fascinating,
0: and I found it liberating because you know telling the story of British unionism and struggles for justice uh, separated or 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 make that fight for solidarity and justice one that need not resort to a history of Marxism or mm-hmm. the existence of the Soviet Union yeah, yeah.
1: And, and also they do it you know their, their struggle is not a violent struggle they, these aren't, they're not they're not Luddites they're not smashing things up they're just forming a, forming a union, and that's what they're prosecuted for. That's what I found fascinating about this. The, the other thing I was going to mention was it, the one thing it reminded me of kind of was a, um, there's a really brilliant edition of play for today from about 1974 called The Cheviot, The Stag and the Black, Black Oil, which is based on a stage play. And it's all about land clearances in Scotland, and it's kind of a history of land clearances in Scotland through the ages up to the present day. And that's, that's framed, because it started off as a stage play, it's framed by a production of the stage play being done in like a village hall in Scotland with the, the, the lead cast playing multiple characters. And he keeps cutting from that to these historical reenactments. But one of the leads in that who's playing multiple characters and leading the audience through the story is, is Alex Norton who plays the lanternist in this one, which is I'm sure not a coincidence. I'm sure Bill Douglas would have been familiar at least with the, the stage play, if not the TV version. Mm. Yeah, well,
0: fascinating. Anything else you want to add?
1: Uh, I I don't think so. I think we should say so. It's it's easily available. There's a BFI Blu-ray of it. Um, It's also available to rent on BFI Player. And it's also available to rent on Amazon Prime, which I have to admit is what we do. And I'm sure I don't think giving 99p to Amazon is what the Tall Puddle Martyrs would have wanted us to do. But that's what we did.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And it was worth it. Uh, It definitely is. The
1: the copy online is, is a really nice HD I, I presume it's the same restoration that the BFI have released. So you can either get it from Amazon for 99p or you can, if you're more ethical, you can pay a little bit more and get it from the BFI.
0: It's, <laughs> it's, it's a very beautiful print uh, that we were able to see. And we highly recommend it, I think, uh, somebody uh, who deservedly has a much larger place in a history of British audiovisual culture than he did in his own time. Thank you very much for listening. We are thinking aloud about film. I'm Jose. I'm Richard. Bye-bye. Bye
1: bye. Bye.